Hello and welcome to the British Elections Podcast with me, Tim Smith. And this is the second episode on the 1950 election, in which we'll look at the second half of January 1950, as the two major parties released their manifestos ahead of the general election, which was due on Thursday the 23rd of February. This episode is going to discuss what was in the manifestos and what was the reaction to them. Food and rationing remained high on the agenda as the West German government, led by the centre-right Christian Democrat Union, announced a surprise early end to rationing, leading to questions as to why defeated Germany could do this when the apparently victorious British couldn't. So before I start this episode, I just want need to make a couple of housekeeping points. Firstly, a reminder that this is an independent podcast, so the views I express in it are my own views and it's my responsibility. Secondly, for the moment I intend to try to release new episodes every week or so. I've pre-prepared quite a bit of material, but since this is very much a part-time project, the schedule may not be that regular, so you're going to have to bear with me. So we begin in the third week of January, and we begin with a political broadcast from the writer J.B. Priestley. He was a high-profile Labour supporter, and he set out an argument appealing to middle-class reasonableness. Yes, he said, there have been some sacrifices in terms of high taxation and rationing and controls, but wasn't it all in the greater good? This was designed to set the scene for the release of the manifesto, which came a couple of days later. The Conservatives did exactly the same approach a week later. They launched their manifesto a couple of days after the party political broadcast. This time, their broadcast was by Churchill. We'll say a bit more about election radio broadcasts in a later episode. So on the 17th of January, Herbert Morrison, who was the de facto Deputy Prime Minister and Labour's Deputy Leader, unveiled Labour's manifesto at a big event to which the press was invited. The manifesto was titled, Let Us Win Through Together. The manifesto repeated the 1945 pledges of full employment and fair shares, and they were the centrepiece of the party's manifesto and its top priorities. The manifesto reminded readers of the experiences of the Tory 1930s with high unemployment. It reiterated what the party felt was its best achievements over its first five years in office, and stated that the party was keen to improve the performance of the already nationalised industries. The legislation establishing the National Health Service and the welfare state was also lauded, but interestingly enough, the document doesn't propose any extensions. On on this it says, what is needed now is not so much new legislation, but the wise development through efficient and economical administration of these services provided by these acts. So the document also confirmed the party's previously trailed announcements that they would take a number of new industries into nationalised the public sector, with their main targets being sugar, cement, meat wholesaling and the water supply. The manifesto criticised the Tories' pre-war settlement with the sugar and cement industries. It said that they were monopolies and considering that the agreements were about to lapse, it would be a good moment to press on with the legislation. Another target was industrial insurance, but this was to be mutualised rather than facing outright nationalisation. The chemical industry got away with a warning. 
it said that a, the manifesto said that a re-elected Labour government would maintain a watchful eye and respond to any monopoly-like behaviour by this industry. On housing, the manifesto was a bit vague. It did pledge to keep building houses and clearing slums, but there was no kind of target. The hand of Herbert Morrison is best seen in the very clear pledges on the cost of living and a new set of consumer rights, and this is a theme that he was very keen to take up personally and expand on throughout the campaign. And as Labour's campaign supremo, he clearly believed it was a rather good retail offer for the public, an offer to, if you like, seal the deal. Labour promised to establish a new set of consumer rights with a watchdog and advice centre, and they said that this new body would expose and tackle unscrupulous practices and unscrupulous advertising, but at the same time it would protect honest producers. They said that they would tackle the cost of living by seeking to take out the middlemen in food retail and to expand public bulk buying uh, in general. The party was also concerned about access to cold storage and food supply logistics, and they said that there would be more public ownership in these fields. Support was also pledged for the farming industry. They said that there would be more homegrown food, and the aim of that was to cut down on the need for imports. So what was the reaction to Labour's manifesto? The Manchester Guardian, perhaps abandoning its middle-of-the-road stance, was pretty critical. It did praise Morrison. It praised his instincts of the reasonableness of the golden mean, as it said, but it expressed the view that it doubted he was the main architect of the manifesto. Personally, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with The Guardian on that point, but anyway. It insisted that it felt the manifesto showed several signs of a left-wing victory over moderation, particularly in the fields of nationalisation. It was also unimpressed with the lack of plans to overcome the dollar shortage and the lack of pledging on housing and indeed no numerical target. The Times, which also regarded itself as rather middle of the road, concurred with The Guardian that the main sins of the manifesto were those of omissions. Uh, it, the manifesto had only made a passing mention to the dollar crisis, and there was a lack of any mention at all of the martial aid that the country had received from the Americans. The editorial of The Times said that the party had no excuses for hiding all of its financial plans. The Daily Express uh, um, accused the Socialist Party, as they invariably describe Labour, as planning an agricultural land nationalisation. Although there was nothing in the document that said that they were going to do anything of the sort, the paper said that there was a clear hint in the manifesto that was too big for the farmer to miss. Well, I'm not a farmer, but I certainly missed that hint. Most critical of all was the Financial Times. They wrote on the 23rd that should Labour return to power, there can be no prospect of avoiding dividend restrictions or penal taxation. They warned that industrial equities were likely to drop sharply if the Labour Party was returned. The Mirror, which of course was a left-wing newspaper, and still is, said that the party was right to regard full employment and fair shares as having the first claim on the nation's efforts. Only by deliberate planning the paper said, could these two aims be achieved. It welcomed the plans for efforts to re raise domestic food production and it also welcomed the Justice for Leaseholders plan. The Daily Herald, which was a forerunner to the Sun, was also then a staunchly laboured newspaper, unlike now, and like the Mirror in 1950, was keen to promote the manifesto. On the 20th of Jan, 
it produced a sympathetic interview with Jim Griffiths, um, who was in, responsible for Labour's insurance plans. He was asked to explain the plans uh, for mutualisation. Griffiths argued that the plans were designed to encourage everyone to go over and above the state minima, not rely on what had been uh, what had been introduced in the previous parliament. But he said that it, the government would make sure that everyone who participated in the scheme would get proper value for money and proper value for their investments. One bit of media that wasn't particularly friendly, and probably unsurprisingly, was Moscow Radio. They slammed the Labour Party for failing to discuss the possibility of cooperation with the Soviet Union. It's also worth commenting on what the Nuffield study had to say about the Labour Manifesto. The Nuffield study, of which I'm going to say far more in subsequent episodes, is a, is a, a book which is always entitled the British General Election of, in this case the British General Election of 1950, and is produced in association with Nuffield College, Oxford, and has been done at every election since 1945. Um, they said that uh, they were particularly critical of the section on the cost of living. They said that it was a bit defensive and admitted responsibility for the, the big increase that had, uh, had occurred over the uh, period of Labour government. I'm not sure I really agree with that assessment. If you actually look at the, the plans in the manifesto with some of the other things that Herbert Morrison spoke on during the campaign, especially his big pitch in the Daily Mirror, which was to come in, in, in the later campaign, I think he felt it was a really good new offer. Be that as it may, it certainly didn't impress the authors Herbert Nicholas and David Butler. Looking at the opposition's response to the manifesto, the Conservatives were actually extremely quiet in their initial response to Labour's uh, release. The party seemed to want to hold fire ahead of Churchill's broadcast due at the weekend. Unfortunately, the Liberals decided to go in for some gratuitous nastiness, and at this point I have to issue my first red card for a breach of Godwin's law which is that in debate with democratic opponents, you do, do not, under any circumstances, compare them with Hitler and the Nazis. The Liberal Party president, and indeed the candidate for Finchley, Andrew McFadden, said that the Labour Party had all the dishonesty of Mein Kampf. No one important bothered to respond. The following weekend, Churchill took his turn for a party political radio broadcast. This was a, seen as a rather negative broadcast, with the Conservative leader focusing on what he said were Labour's failings. He slammed the UK government's obsession with planning and controls, saying it was the only government in the Western world doing it, and it appeared to be doing it for its own sake. He said that the government had failed miserably in protecting the value of sterling, the purchasing power of which he said had dropped to 16 shillings threepence. And if you don't know your new money, that's around 81 new pence. So basically he was saying that the pound had lost around 19% uh, of its value over the five years of the Labour government. He also condemned the government's failure to thank the US and Commonwealth for their generosity, such as the Marshall Aid, and he castigated the government for failing to do enough on the housing shortage. He said that the pre-war government had been building a 1,000 houses a day. The current run rate was only half of that, and it was also being done at three times the cost. He warned that the UK must not take another plunge into socialism, as he put it, whilst all other Western countries had just about had turned their back on it. So unlike the priestly broadcast that went down very well, the media wasn't particularly impressed with the uh, Churchill one. 
the Manchester Guardian expressed frustration, saying that whilst everyone loves Churchill the artist, with his turn of phrase, in every other way the broadcast was a disappointment. It was no good in trying to apply that the abundance could easily be restored if only people would vote for him. It said that the good parts of the broadcast with criticisms of the government's poor performance were wrecked by his disingenuous promises. The Times said it was relieved Mr Churchill was wise enough to have avoided doing another Gestapo broadcast like he'd done five years ago. This was the infamous one that uh, said that uh, Labour, if they win the election, would need to have a kind of Gestapo to run the, or Gestapo as he pronounced it, to, uh, to run the economy. So pretty low bar, all in all, Churchill just didn't say something silly. Unfortunately, the Times regretted the lack of clarity on what the Tories would do. They said, well, on the government's failings, little more needed to be said. But the Conservatives must attract the doubtful and disillusioned by showing how they can succeed while Labour had failed. The Labour Party were quick to respond. The Conservatives had been quite quiet on on Priestley's broadcast, but uh, Labour's Hartley Shawcross was uh, quick off the mark, saying that Churchill's theme was tiresome. He said that basically Churchill was saying, anything Labour can do, I can do better. He added that he didn't believe that the Tories believe in full employment at all. He cited earlier comments from Sir John Anderson that 2% unemployment was too low. So the Conservatives, whilst quiet in the previous week, had issued their manifesto. They sought to make momentum from the Churchill broadcast by releasing their own document, and it was called This is the Road, and this was done on the following Tuesday. They had four main pledges, a reduction in tax, a limitation of controls, they said they'd stop nationalisation, and fourthly, they wanted to grow more food. Hands up anyone who wants to grow less food. Anyway, on the first point, the manifesto promised to reduce income tax by finding savings, and they said that they thought that they could find savings of anything between a 20th to a tenth, so if you like five to ten percent, in government spending. On the second, they would keep controls to a minimum, except those on the, the protected consumers from monopoly type industries. On the nationalisation point, there wouldn't be any. On the nationalisation point, there wouldn't be any additional nationalisations, but only one would be reversed, and that was the incomplete iron and steel one. They did, though, promise to end bulk buying and reopen the Liverpool Cotton Exchange. On the final point on on growing more food, they said that they would keep guaranteed minimum prices for agricultural production, and they said they would also offer subsidies for rural infrastructure. Other pledges were quite surprising, including one suggesting reform of the House of Lords, which seems most unconservative. But there does seem to be a ulterior motive, which is that they wanted to increase its powers to check the power of the House of Commons. So basically they thought that the Labour government had been able to ride roughshod in the last five years because the House of Lords had been so weak as it was filled with hereditaries. They also pledged an empire conference on the dollar gap. And they expressed a hope for gender equal pay when it was uh, possible to do so. In fact, both parties had at some point expressed a hope to move towards equal pay, but neither delivered on it, and it wasn't until the mid-1970s before the full force of the Equal Pay Act took effect. It's worth comparing the manifestos of the two parties, 
And it's sometimes said that in the 1950s and 60s, there was a consensus between them, the so-called Butskillite, i.e. named after Rab Butler and Hugh Gateskill. It, it said that there was a consensus on social welfare and Keynesian economics, the sort of post-war settlement, as it was called. And it is beyond dispute that the gap between the two parties had narrowed substantially between 1945 and 1950. The Conservatives had accepted the bulk of the Labour Party's changes, such as some of the nationalisations, and um, the latter had perhaps moved away from some of their more radical ideas, and they were a little bit more, uh, they, they were a little bit less radical on the nationalisation targets in 1950. However, if you look at in terms of what was promised in the manifesto, there is some decent clear blue water between the parties, especially on the economy, and we can actually get some quantitative data. This is sort of looking backwards from 2024 from the Manifesto project, which is uh, a project that's run from Germany by the German Science Foundation. And they analyse party political manifesto uh, across Europe and then score them on left-right scale. And the Manifesto project for the, for the UK um, shows the two parties being almost identical on so-called progressive conservative issues, societal issues like abortion or migration, and perhaps th that's because they weren't mentioned in 1950. But on economic issues, the gulf in 1950 was actually wider than at any election until 1970. And the gulf in 1950 between the two parties on the on the Manifestos project was wider than in from 1997 until 2015. And I think the Manifesto project team have really got a point in this. I think that there's a, a lot to be said in this analysis. If we have a look at the two manifestos in terms of government spending, the Conservatives in 1950 were proposing cuts of 5 to 10% in government spending. And that's around 2 to 4% of GDP, whereas Labour are proposing no change. So the gap between them in terms of their spending plans is perhaps 2 to 4% of output, so quite a big gap. And if you compare that to some of the other elections, um, in 1997, for example, when the parties really were very close together, Labour proposed no change at all from the Tory spending limits. In the 2010 election, which came after the financial crisis, um, George Osborne, the Conservative Shadow Chancellor, and Labour's Alistair Darling, who was the incumbent Chancellor, both uh, published their plans ahead of the 2010 election. And the rival spending plans were around 1% one, one to 1.5% of GDP different, the Conservatives pledging slightly stronger cuts. As it happened, during the Conservative-Liberal um, coalition ended up um, implementing what was pretty close to actually what the Darling plan was. So please don't assume that there wasn't a choice here. There was quite a, a big difference between the two manifestos, at least in terms of government spending. So what was actually made of the Conservative manifesto? True to form, first off the mark was an iron bevan. He said that he had real sympathy for the Tories this time, sarcastic as ever. They really weren't used to actually having to contest for office. And so this time, rather than it being handed it to them on a platter, they'd had to concoct a case for power. Labour's George Isaacs said that anyone who listened to Churchill or who read the Tory manifesto would have thought that the British workers were the laziest sort of skanks that had ever walked the street. He said that the Tories were lying on their conversion to full employment, 
Their newspaper of choice, which he said was The Economist, had called for a 5% unemployment rate. Lord Pakenham also criticised it. He said that it was clear from the text of the manifesto that the Tories were indeed going to cut food subsidies. And he added that they didn't seem to care that this would raise inequalities. And at this point, I should remember, since we're talking about Lord Pakenham, whatever you do, don't mention Myra Hindley. I think I might have mentioned her once, but I think I got away with it. So moving on, how about the press? The Manchester Guardian. Now, I quote the Manchester Guardian a lot because they're a sort of middle-of-the-road, highbrow newspaper, so it's, it's quite an interesting sort of gauge of what sort of centre-ground opinion thought. And it was actually slightly more friendly to the Tory manifesto than it had been to Labour's. It said the document was better written than Labour's, and it said that its def- defects and lack of substance were less obvious. It welcomed their plans to reduce income tax. Could you imagine the current Guardian saying that? But it pointed out that if the Tories do find their 20th of government spending, it will only equate to a one shilling reduction in the rate of income tax. Now, if that's completely bamboozled you, that's 5%. Five percentage points, so that would have, that would have taken the standard rate of income tax down from nine shillings to eight shillings, forty percent, or thirty-two percent on earned income as opposed to unearned income. So that was the joys of the tax system then. The Manchester Guardian, which liked to think of itself as leaning to the left, uh, I, I think you could have fooled me, but anyway, there we go. It said that never before had the Tories produced such an enlightened statement on employment, but it did warn its readers that not all of its candidates were as liberal as Mr Butler or as broad-minded as Mr Churchill. One paper which certainly wasn't a left-wing newspaper was The Economist, It welcomed the manifesto, saying that it contained some shrewd bait. It said that it taxpayers, women in work, road hauliers, and even trade unionists who were subject to pay restraint, um, the government had done some voluntary pay restraint, uh, were all being baited. There was something for almost everybody. The Times described this as the road as an able and thorough piece of work although it did ask if the Tories had gone far enough or deep enough. On the left, well, unsurprisingly, the mirror was scathing of the Tory manifesto. It refused to believe that the Conservatives had really been converted to the cause of full employment, given their record when they were in office in the 1930s. How, 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 it demanded, were the Tories going to maintain full employment without planning? to keep prices down without controls, keep spending down whilst raising pay for soldiers and teachers, but without cutting food subsidies. This is not good enough, in bold print. The Tories must explain if they wish to be taken seriously. A day later, the Mirror editorial urged voters in bold capitals beware of the Tories' housing plans. It says that their propaganda, this is the Conservative propaganda, about reducing deposits to £75 was a a cruel trick on the small wage earner hoping for a home. The Daily Herald, which is perhaps even to the left of the uh, Daily Mirror, said that this is the road should be changed to we want to live in Queer Street. That means uh, sort of basically debtor's prison. Tory claims of enormous waste, the paper said, had been debunked. Their plans to abolish bulk purchase showed yet again they were the spokesmen for the profit-taking section of the community, since middlemen would swoop in and take the business for themselves. The Tories' conversion to full employment, whilst failing to make any 
mitigating employment problems was an unsuccessful bluff. On the 21st of January, Britain's fourth party, the Communist Party of Great Britain, released their manifesto. It called for the US control of Britain to end. It threatened to tax corporations and the rich till they really squeal, squeal, and it said that they would pay directors of nationalised industries much less. It promised to establish parliaments in Scotland and Wales, and Northern Ireland actually had its own at this point, and it said that it would refuse to allow any trade with what it called fascist Spain and Greece. There would be no cooperation with rearming the Nazi government of West Germany. Charming stuff. Aside from the manifestos, the issues that took centre stage in late January were food and the continuation of rationing. On Saturday the 21st of Jan, the food minister announced that the bacon ration was likely to rise as much as five ounces in the year, as a bulk buying deal had been uh, reached with Canada. Nothing to do with the election, of course. He further announced an increase in the sweets ration from four ounces to four and a half ounces. Double plus good comrades. However, it emerged that there was some small print in the announcement. Off-ration food-based confectionery would now be brought into this new four and a half ounce allocation. It also slipped out the following week that allocation of coffee to cafes and restaurants would be cut by a fifth. In one of those sad ironies of history, Saturday the 21st of January was literally the day the author Eric Blair, George Orwell, died. The following week, a rationing debate heated up as West Germany's Conservative Liberal government announced that all remaining food rationing would end on the 1st of March. Unsurprisingly, this provoked a ferocious attack on the UK government by the right-leaning press, who wanted to know how on earth war-shattered, defeated and occupied Germany had managed to end all food rationing before the victorious British. The Express in particular was outraged that the German shops appeared to be full of food. The left-wing press responded with equal fury, claiming it was a cruel policy by an uncaring right-wing German regime that would allow the rich to help themselves whilst the many unemployed would have to struggle to afford to feed their families. The left-wing popular press also took offence from comments from a crank member of the Liberal Free Democrats. He said that France was equally to blame for the war. God, could you imagine? He was quickly disavowed and removed from his duties, but not before the mirror described Germany's politics as being diseased. Clearly sensing immediate danger from the German announcement, the food minister, Mr Strachey, was very quick to respond. He agreed with the Express that the German shops were indeed full of food. But this was, he said, because no one could afford to buy any of it. So whilst the Germans had food in their shops, the British had had food in their homes. The Express, which at that point was the UK's uh, most read newspaper wasn't going to accept that. It claimed that the Germans had invited Mr Strachey to come to Germany and see how they had done it. It carried vox pops from what it said was ordinary Germans who said that they were saying it was the best news since the end of the war. It also took offence on behalf of the Germans, which is very kind of it, for Mr Strachey's comments on prices and unemployment. 
Uh, it pointed out that Germany had had to take in 8.5 million refugees from the lost territories in the east, Pomerania, Silesia and East Prussia. The Daily Herald reported that the row was the first Tory election stunt. It said that the Express, which was after all owned by Churchill's pal Beaverbrook, was lying that German workers supported the end of rationing. It went on to claim that Adenauer had had to backpedal on uh, petrol rationing. The Mirror reported that the German move was a malicious trick by the Adenauer government to put pressure on the Allies. It said that it was notable that German consumption of sugar was less than half of that of the UK and that German calorie consumption was only 2,600 per head versus over 3,000 in the UK. It called for the UK, France and the US to stand up to blackmail and cynicism from Adenauer and his government. At this point, the silence on the issue from the Conservatives is, is actually deafening. You can see how the Conservative spokesman left it to the popular press to use the issue to attack the government. However, uh, Mr Churchill uh, will soon get involved himself. Now, I think I've already compared John Strachey, the food minister, to rather like being the health minister in times of the Covid lockdown. Um, and uh, rather like the future health secretary, the food minister was rarely out of the headlines. On Wednesday the 25th of January, a ferocious row exploded between Strachey and the butchers this time. Butchers were all in a, a sort of league trade association, and they rejected an increase in the ministry's uh, surcharge. There was a surcharge that they had to pay of seven old pence. Um, the press reported that the next week's ration was now in question unless an agreement could be reached. The Express reported that Strachey had declared war on the butchers and that you won't get your meat next week. Luckily over the weekend the situation calmed, the butchers agreed to back down and pay the surcharge at least until the election was over. The Daily Herald that weekend carried a sympathetic interview with John Strachey at his home in Essex which was quite surprising given that he was the member for Dundee. Um, but it's worth, as, as we'll discuss later in this podcast series, MPs actually rarely visited, never mind actually lived in their constituencies in this point. The Herald's Victor Thompson was treated to Mrs Strachey's, presumably off-ration, rabbit casserole and met his son, who at Westminster School compared and complained of being teased about his well-known father, uh, rather interesting that uh, that he was sent to private school, perhaps. Victor Thompson described Strachey as a brilliant and sincere servant of the public. Typical um, Daily Herald-style writing. Final point on this food and rationing stories, it was clearly an extremely potent issue for the popular press. And um, they would have been well in touch with what their readerships were interested in. At the start of the month, there was very little politics at all in the mirror. Um, there are a few half-hearted gotchas on the Socialist Party, as they called us in the Express. But as soon as the German food row emerged, the two most read British newspapers, the Express and Mirror, really exploded into life and they plastered pages of coverage on the, on the German matter. So rationing and food supply was clearly an issue that uh, their readers were interested in. The final topic of these third and four weeks um, is a row and exchange of letters between the Conservatives and Liberals over the use of the term Liberal Party. 
So the original Liberal Party uh, was rather prone to split. Um, it was founded in, in 1859, led for many years by Gladstone, and it has split on several occasions. In 1886, it split over Ireland, with the Liberal Unionists eventually joining the Conservatives. In 1916, Asquith and Lloyd George had, sp had split over World War One. And in 1931-32, the most deadly split in terms of the party's survival was between basically what was left of the party, um, centre-right liberal nationals led by Sir John Simon, uh, had decided to stay with the national government, whereas the centre-left, the more centre-left tendency of the liberals, led by Sir Herbert Samuel, uh, left the government. Uh, they were unhappy with the national government's policy on protection. And so they continued on as an independent party. And confusingly, between 1931 to and 1945, there was quite a bit of churn between the national liberals and the independent liberals. And there was a third group of liberals, as if all that wasn't enough, and that was uh, surrounding uh, David Lloyd George and his family. So by the time of the 1945 election, there were 13 liberal nationals who were renamed national liberals from 1945, and they were against 10 left-wing liberals. Um, but really, the National Liberals ceased to be an independent party uh, in all but name after 1947, the so-called Walton-Teviot Agreement, whereas the National Liberals agreed to de facto merge, although part of the national organisation in the country was kept, and also, more importantly, the brand would remain. The Conservatives clearly valued this brand. It was a kind of market tool. And it attracted voters in certain areas, or at least they thought it attracted voters in certain areas of the country, with a long-standing liberal tradition. And many, con basically conservatives, were, including Michael Heseltine actually, were to continue to run on the national liberal ticket, even though they were really conservative, or under other concoctions, such as the liberal conservative, uh, until around the, uh, 1965, when Ted Heath took over the party. And north of the border, um, as well as national liberals and other such uh, exotic parties, the Labour Party faced the Scottish Unionists, which is also the Conservatives. Um, now, looking at this in terms of Churchill's point of view, we have to remember that in 1950, from Churchill's point of view, the majority of the Liberal Party, you could argue in terms of their MPs, were now part of the Conservative Party. Um, so he may well have felt entitled to claim that the Tory manifesto was in fact that of the Conservative and Liberal parties, which he did. Now, we know now that the Liberals are going to survive as an independent party. They had uh, 10 seats in, in 1945, but they would get into the 60s by the 2005 and, uh, and 2010 election, and they had 57. Um, so they made a significant revival, and we know that now, but of course they didn't know that then. It was very much a matter of debate in 1950 as which of the two, whether the independent liberals or the national liberals, could claim to be the successor party to that of Gladstone. The liberal leader, though, was having none of it. Clement Davis was furious uh, with the Conservatives claiming that their manifesto was on, on, on behalf of the Conservative and Liberal parties. He wrote to Churchill asking him to stop using the name Liberal or running Liberal Conservatives or Conservative Nationals or National Liberals. Churchill's responded sarcastically with an open letter saying that the Liberals were going to recklessly split the anti-socialist vote by running 400 candidates. He said that the two parties agreed on many things. 
Had Davis not noticed that no candidate was running as a liberal socialist, Davis wrote back that it was a damning indictment that the Tories felt their name so tarnished the extent to which that they did not want to fight the election on their own. I think maybe he had a bit of a point on that. Um, so other news that competed for the public's attention was the start of the Republic of India. Um, the newly independent country had uh, decided that it didn't want to keep the monarchy. And ceremonies took place in London as well as in India itself. Uh, George VI of the United Kingdom, who'd actually been the emperor prior to independence in 1947, sent greetings to the fledgling republic, as did Mr Attlee himself. The popular press, meanwhile, were excited by a murder trial. It was so-called Hume trial, which began on the 18th of January. There was plenty of wall-to-wall sen -wall sensationalist coverage of every twist and turn from the cause. There was outrage at the BBC following a party election broadcast by the Communist Party. Tory unionist peer Lord Craig Avon accused the corporation of violating its royal charter in that the CPGB was an avowed opponent of the monarchy. Maverick Tory MP Sir Waldron, Waldron Smithers, uh, not to be confused with the Simpsons character, um, said that this proved that the Communists had infiltrated the BBC, a point he'd been making in Parliament for the past five years. If such a broadcast went ahead, the BBC would be guilty of treason against our king. Meanwhile, in occupied Berlin, the Soviet Union was reported to be increasing pressure on the Allies by putting up additional checks and traffic controls to hamper supplies reaching the Allied occupation zones. In that, what was increasingly being known as West Berlin. Reports from the US indicated that the Truman administration had given the go-ahead for production of the hydrogen bomb. Despite the grave doubts about the morals and ethics, it was agreed that if the Soviets were likely to be able to produce it, the US really must have it. Finally, and in a story that was really going to have an explosive effect on the UK campaign a couple of weeks hence, it was reported that on the 27th of January that the new centre-right government of Australia, uh, led by Robert Minnis, was about to announce the derationing of petrol. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, in the next episode, we're going to move into the start of the election campaign proper. The Liberals are going to release their manifesto and the Attlees are going to hit the road. Mrs Attlee is going to get behind the wheel and drive Mr Attlee a thousand miles around the country. So I do hope you enjoyed uh, this uh, second episode of the 1950 election. If you did, uh, I'd be really grateful. This is an independent podcast, so uh, if you'd like to tweet about it or spread it on LinkedIn or tell your friends, uh, I'd be much uh, obliged. So thank you very much. And if you didn't, thank you very much indeed for listening anyway. <laughs>